This episode of Live from CapTime's Idea Fest is sponsored by Exact Sciences. Learn more about Exact Sciences' mission to beat cancer through early detection at exactsciences.com. Hello, and welcome to Live from CapTime's Idea Fest. With the holidays upon us, we're bringing you even more conversations from this year's Idea Fest, which took place in September on the University of Wisconsin Madison campus. On today's episode, the role of business in advancing racial equity in Dane County. The Madison area has been grappling with findings published in the Race to Equity report about its profound levels of racial disparities. At one Idea Fest panel, the question at hand was, what can the private sector do to help? The session, organized by the CUNA Mutual Group, featured five business leaders and analysts discussing topics from implicit bias to institutional racism and how those forces impact Madison's economy. The panelists included Ruben Anthony, president and CEO of the Urban League of Greater Madison. Even though these companies are trying, uh, many folks are leaving and feeling like they have dead-end careers here and that they don't have welcoming, welcoming environments and corporations. Erica Nelson, the director of the Race to Equity Project. There are by far a bunch of private sector entities, Exact Sciences and UW, that are always the five that are listed doing this work. I promise you there are more businesses who could step up. Shiva Bidar. Chief Diversity Officer with UW Health. I think businesses also have a way to really think long-term about their own sustainability, and this is also a conversation that's long-term about the business's sustainability. Zach Brandon, President of the Greater Madison Area Chamber of Commerce. Where we see this, the institutions that are breaking down our economy, is that we don't have an ownership class of people of color. We don't have entrepreneurs of color. We don't have executives of color. And Anna Hooker, a senior vice president with Exact Sciences. Those of us that have that have been lucky enough to make it to those positions, we need to be the ones that have to be loud and clear. Angela Russell, a vice president with the CUNA Mutual Group, led the conversation. All right, let's dive in. I hope you enjoy the talk. So the premise of this conversation today is all about the business role in racial equity. The Race race to Equity report came out in 2013. Is that correct, Erica? Yes. And since then, we've seen a lot of discussion around government and the nonprofit sector, but not really involving the business sector. And I think that we have a role to play beyond giving grants and money to nonprofits. So that is the genesis of the conversation. And where I want to start is, Erica, with you to just give a, like, three-minute quick overview of Race to Equity, and then we'll get into um, what the private sector role is. Sure. So um, Angela referred to this. Um, A minute ago, uh, we released the Race Equity Project, released a report called The Baseline on Racial Disparities in Dane County in 2013 that highlighted uh, the difference in well-being between African Americans and whites in over 60 indicators, many of which focused around economic well-being. And the numbers were striking uh, with respect to the African-American population in terms of high levels of unemployment, uh, child poverty, poverty, median household income, 
that were just strikingly vast uh, as compared to uh, whites and white households. Um, so the median household income as of our report in 2013 was probably around 28,000 for a African American household and was closer to 65,000 for that of a white household. Um, so the report was released in about five years ago now. And since then, there's been a lot of community uh, conversations. And I think uh, a lot of varying response with respect to how to address many of uh, the disparities in well-being highlighted in the report. And consequently, in 2016, after having a lot of community conversations, we released something called the Roadmap to Equity, which is looking at recommendations, really sort of generalized recommendations on how to address uh, the uh, challenges that were presented in the race equity report. And the roadmap essentially highlighted the need to focus on three main pillars uh, to increase racial equity in the county, and that was looking at improving economic well-being for um, uh, families and households and children of color. That was uh, uh, looking at um, supporting parents uh, in uh, raising children and being able to balance the twin challenges of having employment and raising uh, children. And so that includes things like looking at transportation, housing, uh, childcare, and early um, uh, interventions, and having the option for affordable quality childcare. And then also <coughs> looking at those same families and seeing how our education system can um, support the children of these parents. So it's really looking at sort of these three large general areas and looking at a two-generation strategy. We can't just invest in kids without investing in their parents and the families and the communities that surround them. And I think that, as Angela pointed out, there has been a lot of um, emphasis and work done in the nonprofit sector and through uh, government agencies, both the county and the city, that has been explicit about addressing racial equity, whether that is uh, with respect to internships in the city or um, increasing training programs, or like recently there's been the investment in the MATC South Campus, and that is really directed at providing more um, students and young people of color and adults with the opportunity for education that is... Uh, leading to stable um, living wage employment. Uh, and I think that the private sector, as Angela pointed out, has a, a role to play. And so, and it's actually crucial that we don't just rely on government as government is shrinking and the resources are shrinking um, to come up with the answers. And the same goes for uh, the nonprofit sector, given that there's so many services that people and comprehensive, expensive services that people also need. Uh, so... Um, having a, a better, more robust, robust private sector investment in uh, improving racial equity here in the uh, county and the city is uh, vital. Great. This next question, I'm going to start off with Zach. Zach, so your role as the president of the Madison Chamber of Commerce is to help get businesses interested in coming to Madison and help businesses thrive that are already in the Madison area. So my question for you is, what do you, is it challenging for businesses to want to come here when they see headlines like that Dane County and Wisconsin is a worse place for blacks? So how do you respond to that? And then um, for businesses that are interested in coming here, and then what do you think are the role that the private sector has to play? Should we have a role? And if so, what should it be? Uh, so the first and then I'm going to want to hear from Dr. Anthony after that. 
Um, one, we're bigger than Madison, so we're the greater Madison region, so we go Dodgeville to Waterloo. We have 1,300 members of varying sizes and sectors. Um, we do a lot of recruitment work and a lot of expansion and retention work, um, but it's not the only thing we do. It's just one quarter of what we do is the economic piece. Um, you know, the headline that we talk about, which is uh, Madison as the worst place for people of color, specifically for blacks, um, actually isn't a headline. I mean, it's not, it's, we, we know it from the study, but the headline's actually Wisconsin is the worst place in America, largely driven by the southeast part of the state. Uh, Racine and Milwaukee really do um, drive uh, the numbers down for us. So um, statistically, um, that headline um, doesn't necessarily appear nationally. We know it internally. We know the challenges that we see. It's, it's evident in all of our institutions, um, be they school graduations, college attendance rates, incarceration rates, we can see it um, in many places. So we don't really, um, we rarely grapple with that question from a business where a business says, well, I read this headline. Um, we see it more on a talent side. Um, and it's less, again, about the headline. It's more people saying, is this a place for me? Is this a place where I'm going to feel included? Is, there, is this a place where I'm going to find more people who look like me, think like me, have a shared experience, um, the shared experiences that I have? And I think that's the bigger challenge for us. And where, where that does cause, though, a future stumbling block for us is if talent doesn't come, then businesses won't come. Right? So it's, it's a little bit of a chicken or egg thing. So although we're not hearing it from businesses today saying, I think you have a racial equity problem, because um, most cities in America are grappling with this challenge. In fact, I think every city in America is grappling with this challenge. Um, we're, but more likely what will happen down the road is businesses will look at the area and say, you clearly have a talent problem. We're not be able to find the diverse economy in order to have the type of workers that we want. So that's, to me, the bigger challenge is the long-term impact of what we're seeing institutionally, um, maybe not in headlines, but certainly institutionally within our region. Thanks. Dr. Anthony. Yeah, so um, that question has two components. The first is, is this whole notion about the tales of two, city, um, two cities here in Madison or in the, the Madison area true? I think it is, but I think it is because um, poor people or African-Americans and other minorities do so bad, and for some reason, whites do so well. And so what's not really explained that much is that the gap is huge, and that gap is what is talked about. But when you look at those folks that are on the poor end, they do suffer in this city like they suffer in other places. Now, what role um, should uh, private industry play? I think the private industry has to begin to uh, transform uh, their cultural environments. They have to make the environments more welcoming. Uh, a lot of times, uh, African-Americans and other minorities, they get on the jobs and they become isolated. They don't have support systems. They don't have mentors. And, and uh, they may get in the door. We're doing a better job at getting people in the door, getting people in the door at the entry level. And then even those who get in the door at the entry level have a high probability of failing because they don't have the support mechanism. The climate hasn't changed. <coughs> Sometimes the leadership has not, you know, um, pushed the message through the organization that we have to be more accepting of diversity and we have to accept people for who they are. And then now after we get people in the door, um, Corporations now have to start focusing on how you keep them, how you make people feel welcome and want to be there uh, once they get through the door. And the biggest challenge that we're facing now is upward mobility. When people get there, um, they don't feel like they have a career that's growing. And so they leave this city. So many young professionals 
African Americans are leaving the city. We have brain drain. They come right here to the university. They do well in the university. They do just as well as any of their white counterparts, but they don't have the same type of career advancement opportunities in corporations, and so they leave, and so we have brain drain. So if we don't want to lose talent, I think uh, corporations have to play a role in uh, making people feel welcome, investing and growing those people in their companies. But let me just say one other thing. Now, even though we're talking about disparities and we're talking about um, uh, disequities, Madison, most companies here in Madison do get it because, as you heard Angela open up, there are great partnerships going on in, in, in this town with CUNA Mutual, Exact Sciences, uh, American Family, and, and all these guys are trying. And, and But we still have work to do uh, because even though these companies are trying, uh, many folks are leaving and feeling like they have dead-end careers here and that they don't have welcoming, welcoming environments and corporations. Thank you. So, Anna and Shiva, I want to direct this next question to you, and it's going to piggyback off a little bit of what Dr. Anthony just said in terms of corporations that are trying. I think Exact Sciences and UW Health are, have been engaged in this. But um, I think a couple of things that you said, we're trying, but there's challenges in terms of getting people in and then retaining and then upward mobility. Could you talk a little bit about what you're seeing at Exact Sciences and at UW Health? Um, that, that is a very um, interesting conversation for me because we are in the beginnings of this conversation of racial equity at Exact. Um, we are in we are intentionally adding a lot of programs to support these efforts. And we are looking at issues like Dr. Anthony mentioned about helping people feel welcome. What do we do about giving tools to these talented individuals that join us as entry level? We start by offering entry level jobs, like Dr. Anthony said, at wages that are ahead of the game of the entry level jobs in Madison. So that was the first step. Let's look at the economic support we can give. So we have that conversation about equity and people having those resources. The next steps are really starting giving tools to these individuals and their families to be able to grow within the company. What things are they like? Let's look at gap assessments. Let's look at what do you need to grow your career? What kind of things can we do to help you? What mentors can we assign you so you feel welcome? So I don't want you to talk white. I don't want you to talk brown. I don't want you to talk purple. I want you to be you, and I want you to just learn the language of the company so you can start a conversation that others can hear and can assimilate. Because that's the beginning of this whole thing. And I think we're making progress there. And we will continue to make process. The next uh, progress there, the next steps we're doing, we're looking at ch potential child care in-house. And that will help also with that conversation. Because some of these um, issues that our employees face is that sometimes they cannot afford to apply to some of other positions because they require other time commitments and they have families to serve. So there may be things we can do to help there. We're also looking at what do we do in the health and wellness area. We are doing programs with local food um, suppliers that are doing diets that are healthy for our employees that we can address that health and wellness issue that we know that that group encounters because of 
poor resources and we need to be part of that whole well-being of that individual not just i'm going to pay you more i'm going to give you a promotion because there may be one or two people that get a promotion but there's a lot of people that need the same resources and the jobs and the opportunities that may not want to grow but they deserve a very good wage and a way to feel welcome and empowered to do their best every day at work great thank you Thank you. Um, so for us at UW Health, I think, um, one, we have 16,000 employees at UW Health. So the, even the premise that we wouldn't be part of a conversation around racial equity in, in, in our region would not hold itself. We represent 16,000 people um, who live um, in our area, and, and then we serve hundreds of thousands of people um, that live um, in most of them in, again, the greater um, region, but statewide. So um, I feel like certainly we are as, as a healthcare system at the forefront, both of serving as healthcare providers, um, individuals, and seeing the, how those racial um, inequities impact people's health and wellness, and we can come back to that, but also looking at our employees and understanding um, how 16,000 people represent or do not represent uh, really the demographics of, of our region. So I would say uh, I, I couldn't agree more with, with, um, with Dr. Anthony about um, the issues of a culture within, within um, organizations, a culture of inclusion and how people really may be coming through the door, but if we are not intentionally investing within the organization in making sure that there is really an understanding within the organization of what uh, the culture of the organization um, needs to look like to really make people feel like they can really thrive within an organization. We just are not going to see um, retention and are not going to see also that upward mobility within the organization. I can tell you that um, we have um, invested um, heavily in our career pathways um, department, which is an entire um, department that that is really focused intentionally in partnering and bringing people um, within the organization. But then my work as um, the chief diversity officer is to create then ways in which we can work um, internally to make sure that people are really staying. And also um, one of my big priorities is looking at our management and um, how can we change the demographics there? Right? Because I'm a firm believer that if you do not change middle management in an organization, you're never going to change anything. Um, as somebody that has worked within um, large organizations for a long time, I can tell you that it is the middle management of the organization that actually makes the organization both run from the operations perspective and also makes those decisions um, that really make people either want to stay or leave the organization or create upward mobility. It is those managers who um, provide um, the support um, for somebody to um, be able to um, continue growing um, within the organization. It is also those middle managers that actually take most of the hiring decisions within an organization. And so when we look right now of what our, what our management looks like, we have a huge um, opportunity to make that level of our organization much more diverse. And so um, it, it ties also, I think, into what um, Zach was saying, which is the talent. We need to be able to um, 
bring talent and keep talent here um, that is going to, again, stay at that level of, of management and upward mobility. So, great. Thank you. I have a couple more questions for the panel, and then we'll get to some audience questions. But this next question really has to do with the definition of racial inequity. So according to PolicyLink, um, racial inequity is the result of structural racism that is embedded in our historical, political, cultural, social, and economic systems and institutions. It works cumulatively and produces vastly adverse outcomes for people of color in areas such as health, wealth, career, education, infrastructure, and civic participation. So if that's our definition of racial inequity, can you talk a little bit about how you see structural racism built into the economic system of Dane County, and then we'll bring it back to business? You can go first, oh, or anyone can go first. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh sure. Um, so th this whole notion of um, uh, structural racism um, I think is uh, built into many uh, institutions uh, in Dane County I don't think it's just built into um, the private sector. I think it's built into um, city government and county government. I think that when you put um, policies in play um, that last for generations and generations, uh, typically uh, those policies were not made by a diverse body. And uh, usually um, when people, because of their human nature, when they put policies together, they put policies together that work in their advantage. And so one of the things that I think is built into many of the organizations uh, in, in uh, Dane County, um, whether it's public, private, is, is um, the whole thing about um, the inclination towards um, white male privilege. You know, uh, for the most part, you have, um, uh, you know, white males who are, are supervisors in most organizations. And historically, in engineering organizations, um, you saw that because, um, uh, you know, women and minorities are not... Um, uh, you know, um, being driven towards um, science and engineering and those sorts of things. Uh, you saw that in the construction industry and, and those things and things like that. But this whole notion is um, prevalent uh, in, in systems. And so when you have people being recruited uh, to organizations, you don't have diverse panels uh, in every, in, in, everywhere. And so um, people look at people differently. You know, I sat on... Um, uh, at DOT, I, I was at, uh, there for maybe 20 years, and one evening I, I had a, a supervisor come in to talk to me. It was about 6 o'clock. He knocked on my door. He says, you know, we're recruiting for this one position, and um, the individual um, who came in was an African-American. He said the African-American guy who came in, he says uh, he's got a master's degree in planning, he's got some years in planning, and he has an MBA and he says, so this position is an entry-level planning position. But he says, I take pause in hiring this person because um, the person had jerry curls in his hair. And I'm like, jerry curls? I haven't seen jerry curls since the 1970s. It can't be jerry curls. So he started explaining to me what these were, and they were dreads. Um, the young man had dreadlocks in his hair. And I said, well, maybe in Walworth County, dread, uh, you know, you might not know about dreadlocks, but I'm like, dreadlocks are urban fashion. And, and, and this, you know, you see attorneys, you see doctors, you see lawyers, 
you see people at Kieran Mutual, <laughs> you know, a lot of folks, you know, with dreadlocks in the hair. I said, why should that be a factor? Um, but it was. He said, well, no, it's not a factor. He said, if the person would have had blue hair or green hair, I'd be in here. And I said, but you didn't look at the, at, the, at the qualifications. This person is way more qualified. But we all have our implicit biases. Uh, and, and had that panel been diverse and we've had somebody <clears throat> on the panel with dreadlocks, maybe that not, might not have been a problem. But so we have uh, situations where, again, you have institutional bias, and sometimes it's not intentional, it's implicit that we all bring those to the table and that we, we, we don't mitigate for those. The problem that we have is that we don't mitigate for those. Some organizations do it better than others, but enough, enough of it's not happening. And now I know she said uh, we should focus on Dane County, and I'll get off my soapbox in a minute. <laughs> but we see this happening now with this whole thing with our Supreme Court. We want to stack it so that it is a lot of people of similar disposition, so that when public policies come before the Supreme Court, it'll sway towards one other. That's institutional bias, and that happens all day, all long in America. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone else? That's oh, right. I, I was just going to say that I think that <clears throat> um, structural racism that we see in reflected in our Dane County economy is both the uh, end result when you think about the numbers and the unemployment and uh, the wealth gap uh, as a consequence of historical structural policies from um, redlining to what happened after the GI uh, bill and post-World War II, as well as uh, educational policies, um, uh, um, you know, and, and circumstances where certain communities are left with less social capital and networks that would historically allow them into positions of employment. Uh, with respect to the race equity report, we sort of articulated in the best way we could about what we thought was taking place in Dane County. So there are these historical factors that were disadvantaging African Americans and folks of color that happen across the nation that were also happening here. But it was Madison, like some other similarly situated cities, is unique in that it is a city that people want to stay at. And it's a city that has a lot of highly educated, highly credentialed uh, white students. It's the home of our state government. And so many folks who are less networked, less educated, um, were not, you know, we refer to it as a labor market mismatch, where the city was and the county was in a position where they could over and over hire folks who would, uh, in other places and other circumstances, be in entry-level positions and then be able to move and increase and expand their network and social capital. And here, you can easily uh, hire someone with a master's degree to do an entry-level position because there is an abundant number of highly almost overqualified folks for particular jobs because th this city and this county offers a breadth of amazing things um, and people want to stay, right? But as Ruben pointed out and others, uh, those that don't get to stay or pushed out or don't have as many opportunities are particularly folks of color because they don't have the expansive networks um, that may uh, allow them into uh, spaces that otherwise they wouldn't have had an opportunity. And I think those are reflections of long uh, structural aspects with respect to racism that is being reflected in our current um, economic circumstances. So Stephen and Seth. 
you know, I, I wanted to just add one more point to Terika and, and um, back to what Dr. Anthony had said too, is the importance of the policies in, in creating this structural um, racism really, um, which is we have ongoing policies uh, over and over again that try to keep people again restricted in their ability to gain opportunity and to be able to advance um, as far as their economic well-being. So one quick one that I would tell you is that, you know, we're all striving to say, okay, we would like people to make more money. But in the process of people making um, maybe more money, they're also losing a whole lot of benefits that they cannot otherwise mm -hmm. attain, such as healthcare benefits. So mm -hmm. if you make more money and you're not able to get Medicaid, but you also don't have a system maybe that provides you a better healthcare than what you were obtaining through Medicaid, then again, we can say it's great that people are making $15 an hour, but $15 an hour is not potentially that breaking point that makes you be willing to make 15 and then lose all the other things that are being provided. So again, we build these systems that really, in I think historically, have tried to keep certain people from being able to advance um, in their economic opportunities. So that's why it's structural, because until we solve that mm -hmm. issue, which is, hey, if people are making more money, that's great, but let's not just suddenly take, you know, have this line that says, okay, your benefits go away. I don't, you know, what are the solutions? This is an incremental thing. Can we, like, you know, do things differently? And until those kind of interplays um, really work together, um, we have silos of different work that's being done, but at the same time, we're really not um, helping individuals really achieve their full potential. Um, so those are part of the issues that, that, that we see. And I would say from a, again, healthcare organization perspective, we know that at the end of the day, if what we want is good health outcomes for our community, that everything around getting a good health outcomes, it actually has to do with structural racism. Mm -hmm. So we know, and you know, there is over and over um, studies that have been done in our world, we call it social determinants of health, mm -hmm. but only 20% of anybody's health outcome has to do with the clinical care that you receive. 20%, meaning 80% of what happens to us and about our health has to do with the circumstances of our life. And we know that economic stability and opportunity is actually the biggest driver of good health. Um, so, again, for us, it's it's an it's an investment not only internally for our for our own organization for our own employees, but it is also an investment that we need to do in in working towards eliminating this structural racism because the cost of healthcare would actually mm -hmm. go down if we eliminate racism um, and structural racism. And at the end of the day, again, you know, call us a corporation, I guess, healthcare <laughs> system. But at the end of the day, we would like the cost of healthcare to go down too. So, but and I want to jump into that because that's exactly what I was explaining earlier that we are trying to do. And I can call myself myself privileged. I work in a company that we are creating our company with our culture. We have started from the grassroots up. Our CEO and our management team is very intentional about creating policies that take care not just of that entry wage, but also that our employees have options for healthcare that are not being squeezed by, by payments every month. We have 
plans that we cover a large percentage for employees. We encourage them to live a healthy lifestyle and we give benefits under reduced uh, plans for having a healthy lifestyle as well and participating in this. So it's that whole picture, as she was saying, that we need to invest. It's not just entry level, it's a little bit more money. No, entry level includes the whole package where we're taking care of you as a human and as what we need to do so you are not going to depend on welfare or other things and you can come and grow in the organization and be all we can be. And and we have a large percentage of African Americans in our in our employee population and I am incredibly intentional about it and I am vocal about it and we are going to be the mentors that push the demographics across and that we give them opportunities and we help them and we take them under our wing. And those of us that have that have been lucky enough to make it to those positions, we need to be the ones that have to be loud and clear about the expectations for the company and continue having those conversations with your teams and with your other managements in the organization to say, this is the way we want to continue going and making it a reality for the future. And I'm hoping that as we grow so fast, we can maintain that. And I have all faith we will. It's going to take time and effort but we are going to continue to be intentional about it as long as we have the management team we have at Exact Sciences. Great. Zach, I'm going to um, lead with you on this next question. And you can weave in your next answer because I know you have a thought. I can see it on your face. Um, so you can weave in your answer into this next question. So if businesses are going to get real about talking about um, in, involved in racial equity, we actually have to talk about race, right? So how can big businesses begin to talk about race in a real way? What are the implications of businesses talking about race? And what are some of the unintended consequences when you start talking about race in the workplace? And what are some of the unintended consequences of doing diversity and inclusion without talking about race? Holy cow. Yeah, no, I was like, wait. <laughs> I mean, that's I got a light question. I get to go first. Yeah. <laughs> Take your time. That's your white male uh, privilege. Let me just say on the, on the last one. On the um, one, I'm glad that uh, that um, Ruben said the thing about implicit bias, and um, because there is um, a lot of structures that create the paradigm that we're in today, and some of it are expressly racist, and some of them are uh, based on a bias that people aren't even aware that they have, and they, they didn't think they were doing anything with ill intent, but it has created ill intent. And so I appreciate that that came up because I think we lose sight sometimes of um, how things get created and how structures are created. You know, we do a lot of work in the technology industry, and so we hear a lot from people saying, well, we're going to use technology to solve bias. And the, the, the irony of that is, is that if I have bias, which I do, we all do, um, and I am building a program I'm going to program my bias into that and then we'll never get it out, right? And so the risks are going to get infinitely worse because now they're going to be hard-coded into our systems more so than they even are today. We're not even going to know how they got in there, what they look like. It's going to be buried in lines of code somewhere. Um, on, the, on the question that was asked about um, the structural side, I look at it, if you think about the word equity in business, and business equity means ownership. So if I have equity in a company, I own a piece of a company. And I think that's where the structural um, institutions that... Um, are inherently racist, whether that was intentional or not, start to show up, is that I challenge any of you to name five CEOs that don't run a nonprofit in town that are a person of color. Name five entrepreneurs who are running high growth businesses in town who, um, who are a person of color. And so where, where we see it, where we see this, the institutions that are breaking down our economy is that we don't have an ownership class. 
of people of color. We don't have entrepreneurs of color. We don't have executives of color. And so we're going to need to figure out how we build those ladders or rebuild those ladders because something's built into our structural systems. And it is all those other things I said. It is graduation rates and it is incarceration rates and it is college attendance. But where we're seeing it manifest itself is where wealth gets created and wealth gets created out of ownership and places becoming sticky is out of order. So people stay when they feel like they own a piece mm -hmm. of the community. So if you don't own a seat at the table, you won't stick around. As to the mammoth question. Um, <laughs> Small. <laughs> so here's the, here's the challenge. I think So one, businesses, yes, have to get comfortable with talking about race and discontent enough with the current status quo to say it's vital in order to be able to do it. The challenge for business, um, is that there is an imperative to do it now, right? This is not something that can wait. That I truly believe, and I, we as an institution and an organization believe that this is the one thing that will inhibit Madison's growth. I could spend the whole time talking to you about all the great things going on in Madison, all the headlines, all the growth, all the amazing businesses that are growing here. The thing that will stifle our growth, that will inhibit our ability to achieve what we are, we think have the potential to be as a city is if we get this wrong. Um, so you've got on one hand the imperative that we have to move now and the imperative that you have to get it right. In business, those are very complicated things about move fast, fail fast, fail forward, but you can't fail. And there's a juxtaposition to those two things that makes it very challenging for business. Think about a business that says, I want to talk about race. I want to talk about inequity. I want to talk about structural racism, but I don't know what I'm going to do about it. Think about that space where it says, I, you know, I don't know how to make myself vulnerable enough as a company to say to people, I don't know what to do, or I'm gonna try something and see if it works. And then on the face, you might say, that's great, be a laboratory. On the other side, I said this recently, I said, Madison, Wisconsin has the potential to be a laboratory for change. If anybody can fix this or get it right, we can. And I thought, that's a great talking point. And immediately a friend of mine who happens to be African-American called me and said, my kids aren't an experiment. This isn't a laboratory for my children. This is real life consequences. And so you have to think about, you know, that same connotation from a business community is if I have to get it right, I have zero chance of failure or I will be called out for doing it or I fear I will be called out for doing it. Yet I know I have to move. How do we balance that? And so we have a community have to be comfortable with progress and imperfection. And I think that's our challenge is we have to say we want progress and we have to be OK that it may be imperfect progress. Oh, so one of the things that we have to start doing in organizations, whether it's uh, government or whether it's private company, I think we've got to get to know each other better and, and not be afraid to have uh, conversations. I think there's a safe way uh, to have conversations, not to just have conversations about African-Americans or Latinos. I think that you can have conversations about ethnicities in general. I'd like to know more about uh, Germans. I'd like to know more <laughs> about Irish. I'd like to know more about my Jewish friends. And, and so um, I think we have to do that because we have to break down the uh, microaggressions and stereotypes. I got invited to speak at um, the uh, Monona Grove High School um, earlier this year, and those students are doing just that. You know? And so they start out and they say, well, uh, how come we have all of these um, uh, misgivings and, and these uh, stereotypes about each other? Because we don't, ha we don't talk about them. And so let's get into a safe environment and let's begin uh, to talk about, you know, what are some uh, of, of the challenges that we um, face, uh, and not just in African-American and Latino culture, but, uh, um, um, but, but across culture. And, and they seem to be more together. Uh, and I see younger people more comfortable about like uh, breaking down barriers. 
one of the things that I think, you know, uh, two that we have to start doing in organizations is just saying that one ethnic group doesn't have um, uh, um, uh, a monopoly on brilliance and, and ingenuity uh, and, and, and that, uh, you know, it is a business um, value uh, and it's a real value proposition that we, 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 we stop wasting human capital. We have to start, you know, getting the best from all people that come through our doors. Because when you hire a person and a company, you make an investment in that, in, in that person, and you don't want to waste that investment. So figure out, you know, um, how we can all um, get along. Uh, they do it in kindergarten. You know, um, they do it in pre-kindergarten. They sit people down and talk about, you know, how, you know, you can play, to, play well together. And I think we don't do enough of that because um, we're all scared um, to, to think that we're going to offend you know, someone. But I think um, having honest conversations where you, you might ask, I know um, in the South, you know, um, people thought that, um, you know, uh, if you rub a black person on your head, it was good luck. And I'm like, really? You know, I worked uh, 30 don't years do ago. I, I don't hospital, recommend it. And I know. <laughs> I'm just going to put that out there, Dr. You know, Anthony. And I, I said, coming up from but that, that would be really bad for you. Uh, and I can tell you that if you rub somebody on their head and stuff like that, it probably won't go well. And, 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 uh, and, and you're probably not going to have good luck behind it. And, and so, but we, we ought to sit down and we ought to talk about, you know, all of these uh, stereotypes. All the things that you see about um, uh, minorities on, on, on TV and things like that, um, it's for entertainment. And some of it's not real. You know, some of the news that we see today is not real, and some of it is. Um, um, but anyway, we just really need to have more conversations about how, um, what are things in, in the different cultures, and we need to learn um, about um, other ethnic cultures just as much as they need to learn about African-American cultures and Latino culture, and I think uh, we all be better off. Erica? Yeah, I was just going to, this is actually kind of a pivot back to you, Angela and Shiva, maybe Anna, about the... The role, I mean, and um, <clears throat> Zach's point about ownership. I think that if we want businesses to talk about race, we need them to talk about it externally as well as internally, and put practices in place, so that whoever's representing that conversation externally, as a the private sector, also can say to themselves that the people who of color who are inside the organization, whether it's you know four thousand, sixteen, whatever it is. Um, know that it's being worked on internally. And so if it's being worked on internally, there's some ownership. I, and I'm of the opinion that when you do this work as an organization, uh, it needs to be done internally and externally, and you can't wait for one or the other, but rather they both need to happen simultaneously uh, because the work internally will never be done and the work externally will never be done. So if you put a timeline on that, you're just, gonna, you know, you're just stalling and procrastinating for the sort of inevitable need but that's really your guys' uh, yeah. Shiva. I, I couldn't agree with that more. And I actually think we need to very, very explicitly um, speak about race and structural racism within business. Because, again, I think that, you know, I uh, clearly, I mean, I, I, I understand those issues, right? So it, I also may have this bias of thinking everybody else understands what I'm talking about when I'm talking mm -hmm. about structural racism. And the reality is probably those of you who came to this also understand it because you decided to actually come and sit through this panel. You had an interest in this topic, but there is a lot of people out there who this is just not their world. This is not the conversation they regularly had. And so it is upon us to, to really have those internal conversations so that we understand um, what those issues are. One, as a society, we are part of a bigger society in which these conversations are happening, happening in a bolder 
um, way. And so we have to take that on as, as I think as businesses to, to have those bold conversations internally. We have to, to really move away from the world in which we've been, which is, you know, um, whatever, it's, it's good for everybody. You know, everybody will, will do well. And, uh, you know, if my product is good, everybody will buy it kind of a thing. Um, and really talk about those issues, let employees understand them because we're both educating um, internally um, and also then changing, changing the mindsets, the way that we're looking at things. And, and I honestly don't think we're gonna change society if every employer doesn't take some responsibility for having conversations around race and racism within their business, large, small, whatever it looks like. Um, and so I think we should just have it. They're a difficult conversation because, you know, I know when I moved to this country, I was told I shouldn't talk about three things, which is politics, religion, and race. Um, and I thought, wow, well, that's going to be difficult for me because I, I actually really enjoy talking about those three things on a regular basis. Um, but we need to talk about those things. Um, and so I think seeing an evolution in, in um, being able to um, to bring those conversation and it, it's slow movement um, and it needs to be also sustainable, right? Um, um, so back to, I think, one of Zach's comments is like, you need to move fast, but it's slow. But, you know, I think businesses also have a way to really think long-term about their own sustainability. And this is also a conversation that's long-term about the business's sustainability, both about their um, internal sustainability in, in being able to bring the talent that they need to their business and their external sustainability because they are creating something or doing some work, right? Some product as a, as a business. and. To be sustainable, um, they, I think the race conversation is a critical one in this country. So I have a question that I'm going to tweak a little bit, but it's, I think it's an important question from the audience is, how do you do this work internally in organizations, specifically around race, around without being tokenistic and doing harm to the people of color in the organization? <laughs> Ruben, you're like... Oh, I, I was it. waving. I was oh. waving. My hand. <laughs> oh, you're just <laughs> waving? All right. <laughs> no, but what was the question? <laughs> it's, a, it's a hard one. <laughs> <laughs> the question is, how do businesses do this, um, talk about race, go on this uh, journey without being tokenistic and doing harm to people of color that are already in the organization? Yeah. So so I think there's a, a several uh, resources in the community. Uh, you know, we do a diversity and economic development summit and during that summit, uh, different companies come and we have uh, group conversations. We bring experts in to kind of guide you through a conversation like that. I think um, for professional development, um, companies can send uh, their employees there, uh, not just uh, entry-level employees, but uh, many executives show up, and, and, and it's usually a good time to, to learn. I also think that the YWCA also provides a lot of opportunities for um, racial equity conversations. So I, I think companies have to put um, the resources in uh, and helping uh, develop and changing the culture in their organization. And it, it takes some investment, just like anything else. And so um, if they do that, I think, um, you know, that'll um, be a safe way uh, uh, to have the conversation without uh, creating tokenism. Anna, do you have thoughts on this one? Um, yeah, I, um, 
I am in total agreement that we have a huge responsibility to, to do this. And I know for us, one thing that we are going to be doing this year uh, before the end of the year is doing unconscious bias training across the organization because that's the first step for this, right? You have to set up that what is your baseline and what are you dealing with in terms of keeping people talking. And then you can start having the conversations because the unintended consequences are the tokens. And the last thing you want to do is feel as a token. I joke myself about being a token so many times. And I bring it up to others in my leadership team. In, in my peers, I joke about it. So they are aware that I'm aware that I don't want to be a token, that it needs to be a real conversation. And they take it very seriously. They believe in it as well. They know that it is difficult when you just single out something because you're thinking you're doing good and then they use you as an example because, oh, you have this diversity in whatever, but I don't want to be a token. I want to be part of the whole conversation and I want to be part of a whole group of people like me, like you, like any color that is making a company successful collectively. And at exact everybody's owners, everybody gets a stock because I agree with Zach and when people are owners, they truly feel more empowered to make a difference and make changes. And and does that make a difference for us? You know, I think our culture of camaraderie and teamwork is stronger than even the stock ownership that employees have. That has been very clear to us. I think our culture and people loving working with each other and having teamwork and dealing with differences is more important to them that whether they own stock or not in on the on the surface, you know? I think deep inside, yeah, when they're the older employees that know more about it or feel closer to that, maybe they see it as a more valuable asset. But I think for the young people, feeling part of the team and feeling included is more important than other monetary things that we can give in addition to. Um, so yeah, I think we need to continue and relentlessly having the conversation and not be scared about it because the more you have it, it's about understanding each other. And so many times it's people just being scared of offending just by having the conversation. And, and yes, I'm gonna stick my foot in my mouth 10 times a day when I open my mouth. Every day I do it, I either pronounce something wrong or, or I say something that I shouldn't have said or, you know, because culturally in my world, it may not be an issue but in maybe in other places it, it is an issue. And that's how you learn tolerance with each other, to be okay with those things and, and to just be okay with the differences that we all bring to the table and be able to talk about it. So. Great, so we've got five more minutes left and this last question is gonna be about a call to action. And we'll start down with you, Erica. So if there's one thing that businesses can do either a large organization, medium organization, or a small organization. We've gotten a couple of questions about small organizations, but think about the gamut. If there's one thing that businesses can do to advance racial equity in Dane County, what would it be? So we'll go Erica all the way down to Dr. Anthony. Uh, <clears throat> I think the, the, regardless, like you said, of the size, I think uh, businesses have to be very intentional 
right? And they have to go after it. Like, they can't sit by and, and say somehow this is going to happen elsewhere or someone else is going to pick up the slack. Like, I think Zach mentioned a bunch, and, and Ruben, too. They're by, by far a bunch of private sector entities, Exact Sciences and UW, that are always the five that are listed doing this work. And there, I promise you there are more businesses and organizations in the region, in the county, who could step up. Because it also takes off some of the pressure on some of these other folks to be the ones that are always performing or meeting the goals or solving the problem. And I think it, I would say that the call to action is that you, you show up, you have the intention, and whether it has imperfections, that you move forward and don't let your neighbor um, do it. I said it all. We're on it. Walk the talk. <laughs> Just get Walk involved. Talk, Be intentional. Yeah. Just do it. Great. Thank you. Yeah. Zach? So I have, I have eight things. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to do it in like 30, I'm gonna do it like 30 <laughs> seconds. We'll okay, I'm right. I'm getting Recruit, hire, mentor, promote, push out, invest in, buy from, and then go work for people of color. All right. Can you say that two more times? Recruit, hire, mentor. Hire, mentor, okay. promote, push out, invest in, buy from, and then go work for it. One more time. Yeah. Recruit, hire, mentor, promote, push out, invest in, buy from, go work for. Great. Thanks. Those are great. I would just add that when we say intentional, it means that you actually have to put resources in this yeah. work. Yeah. Um, resources being people who can really keep track, do this work, um, follow it, make sure it happens. Nothing else happens in any business if you're not doing it with the resources allocated to that work. Um, so it just doesn't happen by osmosis. Thank you. Uh, I have one less than Zach. I have seven. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I saw you had seven, so I added one. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, as um, I, I started the conversation here um, this morning, I'll be honest about the culture. I, if your culture needs some work, be honest about it and be about, you know, trying to get it done. Uh, acknowledge that uh, there's some bias that exists and call it out. You know, don't stand around and see uh, something happen and, and not do something about it. One time uh, I was a manager again at DOT and we were having a big conference and uh, one of my staff members said that uh, women don't want to um, uh, be promoted in the organizations because they're spending time with the family and things like that. And man, by the time I got back to the office, I had a call from the governor on my desk. I was like, oh my goodness, I'm gonna get fired today. Because I stood there and I didn't say anything during that time because I was in disbelief that he said that. And so call it out. Um, be committed to um, uh, um, change and making sure um, that you know that change doesn't happen overnight. Um, make a commitment to try it. Do something uh, uh, about you know trying to diversify uh, the workforce. Make a commitment to be fair. Um, provide minority workers and women with uh, mentors and help new workers be successful. Don't miss out on the opportunity uh, of grabbing a great idea uh, from a young person, a woman, or a minority. You know, I looked at uh, how um, rap music is being used in everything now, uh, where it's they're like, selling like right, hamburgers. Like right now. Right. <laughs> yeah, right, right now. Even for this workshop. Yeah, but for... Um, uh, it's, they, they sell hamburgers, they sell cars, and everything with it. And, and even like um, African-American movement, you see everybody doing it now. And I'm like, but when I was a kid, rap music you know, wasn't that important. And then people 
frowned upon it. And so don't let a great opportunity um, go to another business because you've got blinders on about the fact that, you know, women and minorities can bring value to your company. It's a, it's a business proposition that you need to take advantage of. Great. Well, thank you so much. Help me well, um, thank the panelists. I'm sure that they're available for five minutes or so if you have questions afterwards. Thank you for listening to Live from Cap Times Idea Fest. You can subscribe to this show on iTunes or anywhere else you find podcasts. If you like it, please give us a rating or a review. We'd appreciate it. We're also releasing audio from the fest on some of our other podcasts here at the Cap Times. Shows like The Corner Table, The Mad Splainers, and Cap Times Talks. Be sure to give those a listen. I'm Eric Lawrenson, and thanks again for tuning in. 